It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. The Me Too movement has rocked many industries, including journalism. Sure, newsrooms produce stories on the movement, but they're also dealing with the issue internally. Over the past year, high-profile journalists accused of sex offenses have made headlines. Reporter Shannon Van Sant says newsrooms need a culture shift. This isn't about saying you have a nice skirt on or some sort of innocuous comment. The behavior that we're talking about, it causes women to quit their jobs, to leave the industry, to have a sense of fear about a place of work. So it's, it's a really profound issue. In today's show, women in the media speak up about what needs to change. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion was held in Aspen, Colorado at the Aspen Ideas Festival. One year ago, news broke about numerous allegations of sexual harassment against Harvey Weinstein. Here's a CBS clip from October 5th, 2017. Hollywood movie mogul Harvey Weinstein is on a leave of absence from his studio this morning after several women alleged he sexually harassed them. Weinstein eventually resigned from the board of his company. The anchor reading the Weinstein story is Charlie Rose, who, about a month later, was himself accused of sexual harassment. Me Too was already a movement when the Weinstein allegations emerged, but the news energized women. They began sharing their stories. Journalists chronicled them and began telling their own. A group of leading female news writers opens up in our show. Katie Couric is an award-winning journalist and the first solo female lead anchor on an evening newscast. Adrienne Green is managing editor of The Atlantic magazine. Mona Charon is a syndicated columnist and best-selling author. Rebecca Blumenstein is Deputy Managing Editor of The New York Times, and Shannon Van Sant, who you heard at the top of the show, reports for NPR and co-founded Press Forward, which aims to change newsroom culture. USA Today's Susan Page leads the conversation. It was held June 28th. Here's Page. So, you know, I think that a lot of us had our jaws dropping when we heard about these uh, allegations and assertions quite credibly made about the behavior of what, what was happening in some media newsrooms. And, and Katie, I wanted to ask you, uh, something that really sparked and fueled the Me Too movement. Was this surprising to you, or it, was it just something that a lot of people didn't know about and it was just the way things worked? I mean, I think it depends on a case-by-case basis. Certainly, uh, when it came to Matt, uh, this was a real surprise to so many of his colleagues. Uh, just because we just weren't aware of it. I think it wasn't something that was overt. I still don't really have a full understanding of the, the, the women who uh, he was involved with and the circumstances, but clearly it was an inappropriate uh, an ab- abuse of his position and his power, and it was really disheartening and heartbreaking for a lot of people who saw him as a very different person. Um, I think there was sort of this feeling, I think it's, you know, I'm 61, so I've been doing this a long time, and women of my generation, that there was this certain amount of behavior that went on. Um, I would hear, I'm talking not about Matt, but other people, you know, you'd hear rumors, you'd hear speculation, you know, newsrooms are notoriously gossipy. <laughs> and. You know, I would just sort of say, oh, really gross, or I don't know, you know, and I, I was too busy working and being a single mom of two little girls and really focused on my career to pay much attention to it. But I think there were certain mores, you know, that were just 
kind of accepted uh, in television news uh, for a very long time. And I think one of the great things about this is it's a huge cultural course correction. And we are now really examining newsroom cultures. And that's a very hard thing to kind of put your finger on. But I think there are a myriad of ways that things are going to get better. But first, the awareness was necessary. And I really credit a younger generation of women. I think there's a, a real generational shift. I notice in my daughters, who are 26 and 22, who have a lot more agency, who are much more informed about sexual assault and affirmative consent and all these things that I think you know, they have a very different view of their place in the world and how to interact with men in a work environment, which I think is a really good thing. Um, I'm lucky, I've only experienced a few incidents when I was much younger where, you know, the vice president of CNN said I was successful because of my hard work and my industriousness, my intelligence, and my breast size. And he said it in a room in front of a whole group of executives. When I walked into a room, I was 26 years old. And I remember I wrote him a scathing memo saying, hey, my, first of all, my boss, a male named Don Farmer, who I really credit for making me strong, and I'll stop talking and I'll tell this story quickly, you guys, sorry, but he said, you know what, we're gonna sit down, you're gonna write him a memo, and you're gonna tell him that's completely unacceptable and he owes you an apology. Now this was in 1984, right? And so I wrote this letter, he called me immediately, he was just effusive in his apology. But it kind of made me realize, you know what? I don't have to put up with that bullshit. And I had a male ally who helped give me the strength to fight back. And that set the tone for me for my entire career, that I was actually not gonna put up with that. I think a lot of women didn't, didn't feel empowered to, to fight back. I mean, that's, the, and I think, the, one, I think a couple things have changed. And one is willingness of women to speak up. And the other is willingness of others to believe women when they speak up because that's also been something. Is this only in TV networks, Rebecca, or in the print world, has there been this kind of um, routine uh, sexual harassment? I mean, I think the amazing thing is we don't really know. The, the, you know, the Times was obviously at the center of a lot of the journalism over the past year, and getting women, when the system didn't work again and again and again, to go on the record and to tell their stories was our biggest challenge. And there are these settlements that remain secret for so long, that continue to remain secret among, I think, much of corporate America, much of Wall Street. The women who, Ashley Judd, the women who, who went on the record against Harvey Weinstein, who was one of the most powerful men you know, in the world, quite frankly, um, it was incredibly courageous of them. And um, not every story is of that you know, is of that level, is of that interest. But there have been a lot of stories that have come out since. And I feel like we have a lot of conversation in terms of moving this discussion forward, how it should work. Um, we want to be fair to everybody, but it's just been like an eruption um, that I think has, um, that's not at all over. And you, you think about corporate America, what just happened at Intel last week, we haven't heard much from Wall Street. Um, there are academia. Um, this is, this is um, I think, pulsing throughout America. And I think the very positive thing, though, is that, to your point, Katie, younger women and women for the first time have, have really 
received the message, the Me Too hashtag gave them the courage to speak and yeah. to come forward. And this just did not happen until last year. And it's a, it's a sea change. You, the, you know, the New York Times story about Harvey Weinstein played a big part in making this explode. Was that this, was that, how did that work? Was that a conscious, and a hard story to do, right? A dangerous story to do in some ways. Was that a conscious decision by the Times that you were gonna invest whatever it took to break that story and then you were gonna put it on page one? Well, I think people kind of forget that what came first was a Bill O'Reilly story. Yes. And, and that was, um, in some ways, an even harder story because those were women who had been at the network who had signed these secret settlements and our reporter, our reporters, Emily Steele and Mike Schmidt, had to convince women to go on the record to actually, you know, we'd heard about these settlements, but to, 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 to actually state what they were and corroborate was so difficult. And then this amazing thing happened with O'Reilly where we thought, you know, we would print this story and usually nothing happens. But what happened is that Mercedes-Benz and advertisers peeled away from him. And so I think that this is as much an external societal moment as anything else because the Bill O'Reilly would still be there had all the advertisers not peeled away. At that moment, we said, well, how big is this? And so we had some meetings and said, let's look into where this, where this you know, exists elsewhere. And Harvey was at the top of the list, but we also, I think it's very important, you know, one of the most searing stories that the Times did last year was about women who work on the Ford assembly line. And we cannot forget that um, women, you know, who work in blue collar jobs, who, who, you know, who clean hotel rooms, they have like far fewer protections than many of us who work in media organizations. And, um, and we felt that that was really, so, so we did do a concerted push. And Harvey was a big fish that many news organizations had tried to go after. And it was just so hard because no one was able, no one was willing to go on the record until, until we finally were able to pierce that. It's interesting that corporations then made a, corporations which you know, are profit-making enterprises decided it was in their interest to do a socially conscious thing in this case. Uh, I think maybe reflect social media shaming them when they didn't. There's a lot of discussion, including here today, about what's happening at companies. And I think, you know, if you're a consumer-facing company with customers, with employees, with people who need to feel they're part of the mission, um, with, with uh, millennials and, you know, the Generation Z, um, you know, it's not acceptable for, for you know, and, um, you know, maybe it has to do with the political environment and people thinking that business needs to play a more active role in terms of leadership. But it's really interesting yeah. what's going on. It has been. Shannon, you know, we've talked a lot about what's happened to the men who've been accused of abusing women in the workplace and the big names, the Charlie Rose and the Matt Lowers and the Mark Halperins. We should talk more about what it's meant to young women who were in those workplaces and what it meant to them, their careers. You did a really interesting piece uh, in Politico about your own experience. Tell us something about that. Yeah. So I was an assistant to a man named Mark Halpern. He was a political director at ABC News. And I was about 19 at the time. I met him in college. And uh, I never experienced untoward behavior from him myself. But I did notice things that were off. Uh, he had a, several young women about my age that he would mentor and meet with. The door would be closed. And um, he, uh, he was very gracious. I mean, we, we worked together very well. He got me my first job in journalism at ABC News afterwards. Um, 
And uh, I, I have to say, though, after I began working at ABC full-time, I, I felt uncomfortable around him. I, he, not for any, anything I could put my finger on, I felt nervous in his presence. He didn't seem like a nice person, so I just avoided, I avoided meeting with him and I avoided his presence. And it was several years later, actually, when I was reporting in Beijing, that um, I, I heard from a couple of women who were based in China for a while, um, foreign correspondents and producers or who had traveled through on reporting assignments, that they'd been assaulted by him. That um, in one of those closed-door meetings, he had uh, assaulted uh, you know, them in, in pretty egregious ways. And uh, what, what was surprising to me, though, and is that I, I didn't really even have much of a reaction. My, my reaction was not one of outrage. I, I did not think, oh, this should not have happened or we should do something to change this. What I, my reaction when I was told these stories was I was lucky and I managed that situation well. And it wasn't until this movement in last fall uh, when actually a young uh, researcher or editor for the New York Times, I had told her about Mark Halperin about a year ago, a year and a half ago and about the stories I'd heard about him. And she said, this is a, this is a story. We, can, I, can I share it with one of our reporters? And I said, sure, you're welcome to do so, but I don't think it's a story. This happens all the time, and this is just the way it is. And she's, I'm 40, I think she's a bit younger. And then when the, when the news broke about Harvey Weinstein and all of these men, to me, I mean, it just hit me like a wave, like, oh my God, I can't believe that this behavior, which is so appalling, I, it was just a part of my normal day, and um, I, you know, and I think going overseas and having that foreign correspondence work. I, I mean, this dynamic has um, chased me. I've had it in multiple experiences with multiple men, um, and it's it's deeply deeply impacts the women. And I would say that the victims of some of the the stars that we're talking about tonight, their lives have been profoundly impacted. I mean. This isn't about saying you have a nice skirt on or, or, or some sort of innocuous comments. I mean, the behavior that we're talking about, it causes women to quit their jobs, to leave the industry, to have a sense of fear about a place of work where they should be safe and they should be thriving. Uh, so it's, it's a really profound issue. And part of the prof profundity of it is the fact that people like me who were in the midst of it thought it was normal. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. Thanks for listening. On December 19th last year, the New York Times published a story about sexual offenses at the Ford Motor Company. The story detailed a menacing work environment where women were treated as, quote, property or prey at two Chicago plants. The article shed light on the plight of blue-collar workers. Just ahead, Rebecca Blumenstein, a speaker in our show, mentions the article and how it was received by the public. Blumenstein is deputy managing editor for the newsroom that wrote it. Let's get back to the conversation. Here's Susan Page. Adrian, I think your perspective may be different because you are 25 years old. Um, and uh, yeah, I know. Oh, right? oh <laughs> I remember 25. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I wonder if this just seems incredibly archaic to you, that this is just, that, that, the, that uh, the point of view of millennials is just different from what you've heard from 
uh, women on the stage. Is it is it different? What is the perspective of millennials now when you, when it comes to this particular issue? Um, well, I will speak for myself, a millennial, um, and say I don't think it actually is that different. I think that we are in a time when women are likelier to be believed, and that people think that when they speak, people are likelier to speak up, and then when they do, um, it, it is more often that they are believed. I think that to complicate that a little bit, race and gender and class um, and sexual orientation and all of the kind of intersectional identities affect that, right? I think that not everyone is equally believed in the same way. Um, and I think that we have a tendency, it is, it is a, a critique of feminism at large, and I think Me Too, it undergirds that, that um, we often pin these narratives to um, women who are white and women who we can pin a level of sexual virtue onto and people who don't embody that or aren't assumed to embody that same level of virtue um, are not believed in the same way. And I think, you know, I am a millennial, but I'm also a black woman and I'm also cognizant of, of how that affects the, the way that people are listening to and whose stories get told and whose stories get prioritized and who gets assistance and how we conceive of, of diversity in the workplace and, and programs that, that are meant to, to raise women up and that necessarily can't be divorced from, from how we look at how to support other identities. I'm so glad that you brought up women who work in blue collar jobs and women who are migrant workers and domestic workers and work in, in service industries. The, their ability to believe in what the cost for those things are um, is slightly different than, than those of us who might work in a newsroom. Do you think that women... Do you think that women of color are, are still not believed? I think that's complicated, right? I think that women of color are not a monolith. I think it, it depends a lot on the intersection of race and class and position and um, where you stand in the hierarchy and, and your level of adjacency to power. Um, I think women of color in broad strokes, if we're talking in the abstract, have a tendency to not have that level of virtue ascribed to them. Um, to be looked at as hypersexualized and, and having that um, affect their ability to be believed. Can I just raise one yes, issue of related course. to the story we did on Ford? I think that it was a very powerful story, but I also have to, and you know, life changing to your point for the women involved, but it was Harvey Weinstein and the celebrities. Mm -hmm. And something about this, 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 the Hollywood nature of this that captivated yeah. people. We wanted the traffic to the Ford story to be as high as the Harvey Weinstein story, but it wasn't. Because people, people somehow, that hit them in a way that, that, that and the celebrities who ended up, in, including Matt, involved in this, that was much more, it's, it's sad in some ways, I think. But that was, that was what moved this needle in such a profound way. But they're way. also known individuals, yeah. you know, that people are familiar with. And That's I think true. as harrowing and upsetting, and even in many ways, to everyone's point, more upsetting, domestic workers or, you know, maids in hotels, I read a statistic that 49% of them have a guest expose themselves to, to them. And I'm like, what is wrong with these people, by the way? That's a whole nother Oprah. We'll get to another panel. But, but, you know, I think that this familiarity is what brought it to everyone's attention because it was famous yeah. people that they saw on their television screens or that they knew about. And, you know, I think as long as the, the wave continues to help 
other women, then that's okay. So it's what people that they recognize, celebrities, but it's also things they saw in their own lives. And actually, when the Harvey Weinstein story broke in the Times, I was on Morning Joe with Mark Halperin, oh. and who had not, who was you know not at that point under any kind of fire, and he said that. This was really a Hollywood problem. <laughs> and I, I thought, at the, I was on the air where I'm not always, uh, you know, I usually think of the great thing I should have said once we're off the air. Uh, and I was thinking, you know, I don't really think that's true. I don't think this is just a Hollywood problem. But as it turned out, it was not just a Hollywood problem. <laughs> well, I wonder if your perspective is, is different on any of this. If you think that the Me Too movement has gone to, too far, if, it's, if, it, if there are ways in which you have uh, concerns about what it's done. Tell us what your perspective is. Well, thank you. First, delighted to be here. It's my first time at the Aspen Ideas Festival, and I appreciate the invitation very much. Though I arrived today, my luggage didn't, so this is what I was traveling in. I did bring something really pretty to wear. You'll just have to take my word for it. <laughs> but um, so this is the second time that I have. Um, discussed this issue on a panel. The last time was at, um, was at a panel at Harvard, and somebody asked me that question. They said, do you think, don't you think that the, the Me Too movement has I gone too far? I didn't say don't you think, far. I said do you think. Sorry, yes. what, no, I'm just, I'm just um, the, the, the question comes up, um, has the movement gone too far? And what I said to the questioner there was, look around. The, the men who have been accused in the Me Too movement have not denied it. Nobody has said I was wrongly accused, or you know, there have been a few who've been around, you know, a little bit of complaints around the edges. Um, uh, Al Franken said uh, that you know he he was he was taken out of context. He did, he, he was misunderstood a little bit when he was getting a little handsy with people. Um, but basically, all of the people that have been the subject of these exposés have essentially admitted guilt. Uh, so it's hard to see that we're in the midst of this overreaction or that this has somehow been overdone. Um, what I would say, though, and it's really interesting to get the perspective of people, of women at, of different ages, because I'm, like Katie, I'm also 61. I was sexually harassed as a college student, but it was... It was so polite compared to what women are experiencing now. The grossness of the behavior that young women are experiencing and are being told is normal and, and just part of what you have to expect in the workplace. From my perspective, I think things have gotten worse since I was young. I think that men are more um, uh, entitled and have a, a less respect for women and are less inhibited. And I have some theories about why that might be so, but one of them has to do with the prevalence of pornography in our society. If you look at the data on how much people consume porn and how many men uh, make it a daily diet, it does begin to shed light on their behavior in the rest of their lives. Hey, what was the polite sexual harassment you had in college? <laughs> I, um, I had a professor, who, a science professor. I thought he was terrific. And, um, and he invited me to work on a project with him where we would together write a book for children about science. And this was going to be my summer job, and I was excited, and it was wonderful. And at some point in the late spring, he kind of took me out for dinner and said that, you know, he thought this was the beginning of a beautiful relationship. 
and that he wasn't married and that you know he hoped I didn't have a boyfriend and on and on and it, that, that was basically the gist of it and I said well I did, wasn't really interested in that kind of a relationship and he said oh well and basically the way it ended was he never touched me he didn't he didn't expose himself he simply made it clear that if that wasn't part of the deal that I didn't have the job You're tuned in to Aspen Ideas To Go. Our sister podcast, Aspen Insight, is out with a new episode. Step into the Old West and learn about how the myths of that time helped define our values. Western writer Molly Gloss says the old tales of high noon gunfights and tough cowboys don't tell the whole story. She's working to create a new mythology that's more inclusive and compassionate. What we want to do instead, I think, is create a mythology of adventure, of course, and heroism that includes women and that in, that doesn't look at problems in such a simplistic way. Find the Aspen Insight episode, The Old West, Reshaping the Myth, in your favorite podcast player. There's also a link in our show notes. Here's the rest of today's conversation. Susan Page. Well, let's talk a little about what ought to happen now. Katie, what should happen now? What changes ought to be made to uh, make sure that uh, women and men thrive in the workplace and people of color and people of different sexual orientations? What needs to change when it comes to the way that news media works? Well, I think a lot needs to change. And to your early, our earlier point or your earlier point about all the women who have left journalism because they've been, they've experienced this kind of behavior. Just a quick anecdote. You know, I've been trying to understand since I had a pretty, you know, I was in a pretty powerful position early on at 32 or 31. I was a Pentagon correspondent and then I was on the Today Show. So I was lucky and I, I didn't have to strive and I didn't have to. You weren't to, lucky. You were good. Well, yeah, yeah, you're right. I was good. And um, <laughs> you're right. But, but I mean, I was lucky in that I was not put in a position where I, someone powerful over me was trying to negotiate with me for certain things in order for me to, to, to you know, thrive in, in my business. But, you know, I've been talking to, I talked to one young woman and she told me a story and it really crystallized the impact and how careers can be stymied or destroyed by this kind of behavior. The, earth, uh, the earthquake in Haiti happened and she had an opportunity to go cover it, which for a journalist, you know, that's a transformational experience to cover a huge crisis like that and to get that kind of experience under your belt. She, so a network anchor who shall not be named was, gonna, was going to be going, and she was going to be producing for that network anchor. And uh, basically, the supervisor said he has a very bad reputation for inappropriate behavior. So instead of saying something to the perpetrator of this kind of behavior, he dispatched a male producer instead of her. So to me, that was like, wow. That is an example of how this can have such a terrible impact, not to mention overt harassment and sexual misconduct, but sort of almost kind of uh, this sort of behavior and the, the repercussions of that because that person is protected and enabled. So clearly, I think, just quickly, and I think Press Forward has a lot of actually concrete steps, but I think 
organizations have to take a really hard look at their cultures. And I, I'm not a big fan of internal investigations personally because I think it's very hard to conduct those fairly and, and really evaluate what's going on inside an organization. So I think these organizations should welcome uh, outside people who have expertise in this area to take a close look at behavior. I think that diversity training can't be something you send your assistant to so you can check it off the list. You know, it has to be taken seriously. Human resources, I think, should be empowered. Uh, I think there should be consideration of a separate entity to bring complaints to because often human resources departments are protecting the perpetrators and the high-ranking executives and trying to prevent, you know, liability for the people who are responsible for these actions. So those are a few things that I think can happen. And, you know, I think people need to be aware. One of the things I focused on in this hour uh, that I did for Nat Geo is implicit bias. And so many people don't realize how we're so culturally conditioned. So what would implicit bias be? What would be so an example? So that's basically just all the messages we get. Our brains are hardwired to make these associations. And 80% of women and 75% of men associate women with home and men with work still. Because from the time we come out of the womb, we're accosted by these images that condition us to see gender a certain way. And I'm on the advisory board of an organization called See Her, which is 80 companies that are committed to portraying girls and women differently in advertising. And I think advertising is incredibly powerful in shaping our concepts of gender roles and stereotypes. So I think we really need to take a very holistic approach. It's not just newsrooms, it's across industries. It's in the home, how you talk to kids. I remember Jay, my late husband, we saw a movie with Tony Danza, I think, and Ellie was with us, who, and she was like three or four at the time, and in the cab, Jay said, wow, Tony Danza throws like a girl. I said, never say that. You cannot say that. You have a daughter. Do not say those kinds of things. But we have to really just be aware of the messages we're sending to young women, little girls, and to little boys in terms of what our expectations are and what our limitations should not be. So Shannon, tell us about Press Forward and what you think ought to happen to address this. Yeah, well, we're really passionate about creating solutions. I mean, as you've said, we've had so many stories come out, they're gonna to continue to come out, um, but what do we do next? And I think it's a global problem, having just returned from overseas. This is a problem in terms of the objectification and the reduction of women, which results in all kinds of behaviors around the world. Uh, but what we're trying to do with Press Forward is uh, we have two main goals. Uh, one is to do a blueprint, a study, a six-month study in partnership with news organizations to do culture assessments, to look at how are the processes working, how are the teams working, is, it, is there a culture here of verbal abuse or bullying, uh, is there a culture here of objectification of women, um, how much diversity is there in that workplace in, in all respects. Uh, is this, and, and one thing that I've tried to encourage and that I've spoken about before is in any industry, I think, or in any room, any society, if you can shift your focus from the star or from the most powerful person in that room to the most vulnerable person, whether it's a maid or it could be an intern or it could be an assistant, what is their experience like? Do they feel empowered? Do they have a voice? Do they feel safe? Is this a place where they can succeed? And so if you can shift your perspective as a manager, then that will probably change a lot of processes very naturally. Um, so we want to do a study, partner with news organizations, and we also are already 
partnering with Pointer and other organizations to do in-depth training, training of assistants and interns, training of managers, training at all levels of organizations to prevent this from happening. And that training isn't just for men, but it's also for women, because I think part of the problem here is for women to know their limits and to be able to have a voice and feel really comfortable using it. But have the, have the news organization, Shannon, be re been receptive to some of the things that you all are trying to do? Because that's a real clue in terms of what progress you're going to make. I'm sorry mm -hmm. that I yes, asked Yes, please go ahead. Okay. Yes. Well, that's, that's a good question. And I mean, it's a bit mixed. We uh, have a, a partnership with the Wall Street Journal. Um, in terms of the television networks, uh, there, there's been one that uh, the president of that network sounds very interested, but he hasn't committed to anything yet. And then the other networks, um, no, no answer yet. Uh, I don't want to say too much because we, we really do want to partner with them. But I think that hesitance is, um, is a sign of this resistance. And, and people's jobs are on the line. And you have these entrenched power structures. Uh, that have to change um, throughout our society. So, do you think I, it costs us? Great. I'm sorry, didn't go ahead. You. Yeah. Do you think it costs us credibility with readers and viewers to be have these store to have, to have this situation with newsrooms where there is uh, uh, sexual harassment? Do, do you think it, does it matter to viewers and readers? Do you think, Rebecca? Absolutely. I mean, I think that people. People expect us to, you know, to, to work in as high a standard as possible. And when news organizations, or in any organization, falls short of that, it's disappointing. Um, and I think, you know, it's interesting. We're doing a, a women's conference in September, and I've talked to companies about coming and very high-level executives. And we're getting a tremendous response, which is the good news. But what's happening on the phone is fascinating because they're like, well, what if something happens? What if something breaks ahead of time and it shows that we're not perfect? You know what the news is? Nobody's perfect. Everybody has issues. We all need to talk about it. I would say that men, the thing I most worry about is alienating men. I would say that I had male bosses, more than female bosses, who promoted me, who promoted me on maternity leave, who sent me to China with three young kids. I was given a lot of chances. Um, and I'm so worried now, in a sense, because a lot of men are coming up to me and saying, well, can I even go out for a drink with a, a woman? Can I have a meeting alone with a Wait, woman? And what do you say? I, I say, of course. Like, I, when I was foreign editor of the journal, whenever there was a bureau chief who came from a distant place, I would always have dinner with that person because we needed to break bread. We needed to understand one another. And I'm worried about what happens to women if we kind of go the other direction. I think we need to move forward. We need to try to admit that nobody is perfect here and to just work through it. The secret settlements also just have to go away. Right, yeah. it's been pretty toxic. Do you think it matters? I'm sorry, Mona, go ahead. Well, um, on the subject of um, where to draw the lines, right, and, um, and what, does, what will men take as the message, um, one of the things that I, I think we're missing is that um, men need to be uh, need to feel that they are not looked upon as would-be rapists or would-be sexual harassers. Um, but at the same time, there has to be a certain realism about human nature. And one of the things that our society used to have a better handle on was that men are the more aggressive sexual, the, the more sexually aggressive of the two sexes. And they have to be brought up to be gentlemen. 
And there has to be that expectation. And sex is not a casual thing. So somehow, men have gotten the message in the last few years, in, I think largely as a result of the sexual revolution, that it's like women are just like they are, and every, you know, it's all good fun, and if I'm Mark Halperin and I walk up behind a woman who's sitting in my office and the door is closed and I rub my erect penis against her shoulder, which is one of the things that is, was reported, that she's gonna think that's really you know, hilarious, just like I do. And we have to be more realistic. We have to send the message, no, that's not okay, all right? <laughs> under no circumstances is it okay. And under no circumstances should a, woman, a young woman who wants to have a meeting with Harvey Weinstein or anybody think that it's okay for him to invite her to a meeting in his hotel room. I'm sorry, what normal guy thinks it's okay to rub his erect penis on someone? I'm sorry. Hey, would you, have, would you have ever dreamed that it was Mark Halperin who was doing things like that? Yeah. None of us would have. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll hear from you later. Uh, Adrian, I want to ask you, do you there are an increasing number of women in positions of power uh, in the news media and, and elsewhere, not as much uh, boards we were talking about before we started, but uh, you know, Rebecca's an example, you're an example. My boss, almost all my bosses at USA Today are women now, the publisher, the editor, my, the managing editor to whom I report. Does that, is that the solution? Does that make a difference or do you think that is not sufficient? Does that not make such a difference? I think it absolutely makes a difference. I don't think it's the end all be all. I think the way forward is to have, as Katie said, a holistic view of what better looks like, right? That means having an intersectional approach to what it means to support women in the workplace, right? That, that, that is creating a culture that, like when we talk about culture, creating a place where sexual harassment doesn't happen, right? But it's also a place where women are not the only ones in the room, right? Where I'm not sitting in a meeting and I'm the only one. Um, where women are able to not have to act and present themselves like men in order to, to um, rise to the occasion, right? For, for, for the standard of what it means to be excellent at your job, not be predicated on our understanding of men doing that job well. Um, all of that goes into creating a culture and all of that and the focus on all of that is what makes us better, right? Sexual assault doesn't, or sexual harassment and sexual assault in, in the worst cases don't happen in a vacuum, right? These are power structures that happen all over the world in newsrooms and in businesses and um, in households and all over the place. And I think having language to be able to articulate that and having managers all the way up and down the chain, right, from your intern to your CEO, be able to put words and language and be articulate about what harassment is and how it presents itself in this workplace in overt and covert ways, that's the way forward. And if we can't do that, I don't know that having a, a woman managing editor is sufficient. I want to give you all a chance to ask the questions, questions on, your mind, <coughs> on your mind. And we've just, I would just ask that you wait for a microphone to come to you. My question is two-part. So preceding the Me Too movement was the Are You OK Sis movement. And so a lot of people don't really know about that because it was started by black women. And so how do we make sure that marginalized people are not kind of, you know, quieted or we don't disregard their voices when they're kind of making the same statements so that we can make sure this is an intersectional movement? And the second uh, question has to do with like Terry Crews. I don't think it's necessarily just a woman and man thing, it's just consent and professionalism. So how do we make sure that we center the conversation around 
consent and, con and professionalism instead of necessarily just a man-woman uh, dichotomy. Who would like to, uh, who would like to field this one? Well, I just would like yeah. to say those were two excellent questions. <laughs> um, I'll take the last one. I mean, I think that's totally true. I mean, we've seen incidents, obviously, in Hollywood and elsewhere where it's not necessarily a female thing, and I think that's a really important thing to point out that is it about consent, it is about a level of professionalism. And I think, I think one of the things is, you know, this is now being taken seriously in workplaces. I think uh, work, workplace reputation really matters to your earlier point about uh, millennials and younger people wanting to work in an organization that shares their values and won't put up with certain behaviors. So I think that just the fact that there's, a, I, I, I sense, Adrian, I don't know about you, but much more emphasis not only on gender equality, but much more on representation, not just diversity, but inclusion. And I think many more companies are much more mindful of that. Is that your impression for the other panelists here? And Adrian, is that what you're seeing? I would say so. I think if I could also take a stab at um, both of those questions, I think the, the, to answer your first question, um, I think it is about having everyone center um, the voices of marginalized people, not just marginalized people, right? Is when we talk about Me Too, we talk about Toronto Burke, right? We don't just talk about Selma Hayek and Uma Thurman and um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and to have that be a responsibility of everyone. I think to, to, to Katie's point about your second question, it is about um, conduct, right? To not, and this goes kind of to your point about overcorrecting, right? That it's not necessarily looking at women or sexual harassment as a women's problem, right? That we're not engaging with women as though um, sexual harassment is their cross to bear and their problem to deal with. Um, but to say that this is about accountability and professionalism and uh, the ability to conduct yourself in a proper manner and that doesn't have a gender. That's not a gender thing to know how to like keep it together in the workplace. So. Very true. Let's go to the, yeah, yes, yes, please, go ahead. Thank you. One of the things that I'm struggling with is the conversation is still centered around sexual harassment training, which actually the New York Times ran an article not too long ago saying how sexual harassment training actually doesn't work because it centers the burden of prevention still on the victims because they have to be the ones to speak up about it, but rather looking at a different alternate way of actually addressing sexual harassment through bystander training that then trains people to speak up when they witness these incidences. And I'm wondering if you all have witnessed that yourselves in, in the spaces that you are in, and I'm wondering if you're seeing that change the conversation when that shift is being made. No, that's interesting. Oh, I hate this bystander stuff. I really do. It's the same thing you hear about um, uh, when uh, the, the, this is how we should solve the problem of rape, is that bystanders should speak up. Look, it's just not realistic. Most rapes happen with, behind closed doors. There's no opportunity for a bystander to intervene. Um, no, it absolutely has to be that women have come to a point where they are saying, this behavior is unacceptable, we will always speak up about it, and they will be uh, respected, and that men will understand what the rules are and that they have to behave in a certain way. Um, because it has to be a matter of socialization. You, you just can't have outsiders uh, in all the right places to spy the men who are misbehaving. They wouldn't have been there in the Harvey Weinstein case. They wouldn't have been there for the other cases that we're discussing. Sorry, did I miss the point? I'm going to respond to that because in the Harvey Weinstein case, there was people who were driving these women to the hotel. Well, yeah, so, so but... 
Okay, but here's the here's the problem. Okay, so so a few of these people who have been identified as having been harassers, um, some of us knew about or heard heard about before, right? So you've heard rumors about somebody, and then people say, well, you are part of the problem because you didn't speak up. But wait a second, you hear rumors about people all the time. Do we want a system or a society where we start repeating baseless rumors about people and possibly ruining their reputations and their careers based on hearsay? That's also a problem. Did, what about the point about sexual harassment putting the onus, continuing to put the onus on the victim? Is that, is that true, and is there an alternative way to deal with this that, be, that would be effective? Well, I'd like to just contribute one thing which addresses both your question and, and what you just mm -hmm. commented on. I do think that these, this has to do with a culture problem uh, within a company, but also more broadly in society. And I do think it helps if you are a manager and you see another manager mistreating or verbally bullying uh, a colleague or a younger person to say, hey, stop that or pull that person aside and say this isn't acceptable this is not the way things are done at abc news or whatever news organization you're at i think that can be really powerful um, because it's it, it, this behavior evolves in a system if it's seen i mean if, if someone is there to see it yeah no, but I, I i would take the point look many of us are in meetings right and um i learned a long time ago that i try to really speak up early in a meeting, even if I just force myself, even if my thought is not perfectly formed, because otherwise it just gets to be a lot of men talking and you don't feel like you're part of the conversation and you feel worse and worse. And I think one of the best things that anyone can do when someone speaks up at a meeting is say, that was a great point, and to have their back and to, and to actually support them. And, um, we have to figure out a way forward, and, and that's where men are really important as well, because they sometimes just don't even realize it. They just don't realize how they make other people feel. There are, I think you're, that's an excellent point, because I think there are small things and behavioral changes that can happen. You know, there's an expression for when you make a, say something at a meeting, and everyone's like, yeah, whatever. And then three, you know, three people later, the guy makes the same point, and they're like, that is so brilliant. And it's called, it's called keep eating. And so I think even being aware of things like that, being aware that when there's a birthday party, the women aren't the first women, the first people to say, I'm going to go buy the cupcakes or I'm going to bring the paper plates out. It's called office housework, you know. And another thing is I noticed at a board meeting I was at, the men just say their point. The women kind of say, I don't know if this makes sense or I, you know, this may not be germane to our conversation, this tendency to apologize. So I think there are also little signals that we sometimes send that, that I think sabotage ourselves. And Valerie Jarrett had a rule at the White House that if that happened, all the women in the meeting would point it out. And suddenly the men were much more aware of it. So I think there are small steps that can be, make big difference. And I just want to go back to your point about bystanders. I think, I think what I, I heard you trying to say was actually talking about systems of support. And I think that um, there's a, a multifaceted way that you can go about that, right? It, it might not necessarily be structured bystander training like one would do managerial diversity training, right? But it can be a yes and or a that was a great point um, in a meeting. It can be talking to another manager when you see them berating a, a, a fellow employee. It can be 
um, having st structured programs with your HR so that they know how to deal um, with issues when people do feel the need to go forward. It is creating a, like, a culture in which people feel com comfortable coming forward in the first place. There's not one single way to do that, and I think that doing all of those things in tandem is the, is the way that people feel supported, which I think is what you um, we're getting at with bystanders. And I think bystander training can be incredibly effective in situations where there's a likelihood of sexual assault, and that can be an incredibly powerful deterrent if there's a situation where somebody is inebriated and is obviously maybe in trouble, and somebody steps in and says, let's go. So I think there are different kinds of bystander training and different kinds of uh, interactions that we should just point out. And different expectations about behavior, about what you would do if you saw somebody, a woman who was clearly drunk and a man was leading her out of a bar, what your obligation is, whether you know her or not. Let's take a question over here. My question is whether or not there really is a sea change. And given the fact that it's 45 years since Ms. Magazine <laughs> and the feminist movement started, yeah. and then we had a backtrack on the fem feminist movement, is this really a sea change? Is it going to last? I think that's such a great, that was actually going to be my closing question, so <laughs> thanks a lot. <laughs> and that is, is this in fact a transformational moment, or is this one of those things where, oh, great, we all care about sexual harassment, and then we care about something else? Is it, uh, Mona, you look very skeptical, I guess. say. I, I hope that it is a sign of something, but then I may have a slightly different point of view on this from others. What I hope it is, is a backlash against the sexual revolution itself. I, I hope that it's an opportunity for, that, that young women are saying, you know what, I'll, I'll quote a, a feminist, um, Jessica Valenti, who, uh, you remember when that Aziz Ansari story broke in Babe Magazine online and, and um, caused a lot of controversy. In any event, um, what Jessica Valenti said about that story was, she said, look, a lot of men are going to read about that date and they're going to say, this is a totally normal sexual interaction. And she said, and what they don't realize is, this isn't working for us, meaning for women. And, you know, the, as much could be said, I don't usually agree with Jessica Valenti, but I thought that was a very astute observation. A lot of this isn't working for women. And it's not, it's not what they want and it's not what they, um, it's not what they need. Uh, people need love and tenderness and commitment and fidelity all those old-fashioned virtues. And um, one of the things that the Me Too movement could be is an effort to reestablish certain standards about what it means to behave like an honorable human being, whether you're a man or a woman, but especially if you're a man, because they are the ones who are, let's face it, we're not sitting here talking about all the women who are sexually harassing their young male assistants. We're just not talking about that because it doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen because there are differences between the sexes. And, and so that's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that this will be a backlash against the sexual revolution, that we'll have a revival of good manners and good uh, behavior on the part of men and women. I want to answer that question. Yes, please, go ahead. Differently. Um, I, would, I would say it's, I'm hopeful that it's going to last. I don't know that that is going to, it lasting, I'm not sure is going to present itself in ways of new workplace policies or the eradication of sexual harassment. But I do think that what we've gained from all of these discussions is language that articulates 
the rage that women have been feeling all of this time and bottled, right? And that has been released into the atmosphere and people are able to have productive conversations person to person um, that I think change the way that we conceive of consent and what a positive sexual interaction is supposed to be like and whether that um, retreats to old fashioned sexual mores or not, I think that we um, are gonna have conversations that means in person to person interactions, women are able to reach an agreement with their partners to what is acceptable to them in the, in the, in the small scale, and that's still important. You can talk about Me Too in a big way or a small way, and I'd, I'd like to focus on the sexual harassment in the workplace part of that and ask, is this, is this a sea change? And maybe just let the other three members of the panel weigh in. Rebecca, what do you think? I, I think that it remains to be seen, but I'm hopeful. I think that um, it won't be the case any longer that women feel as alone as they did. And I have to say that among women I talk to, almost 100% have had something happen to them <laughs> along the way. I think it's also true that um, our eyes have been opened to the cost of the power imbalance. And you hear time and time again, if there's one woman, things can kind of continue as it has been, but if there's two or three, it doesn't happen. And so, so I am a bit fearful that younger women look at all this and put their hands up and say, oh my God, I can't do it. I've got you know, the kids, the family balance, the sexual harassment, I'm just gonna give up. And um, I hope that that doesn't happen but because the women, you know, women are now graduating you know, at every level of undergraduate, graduate, masters, like whatever way you want to measure it, you know, they are, they are surpassing the men in aptitude and they get into the workforce and it just falls off consistently and consistently to the point where CEO women now, we're, sh we're going backwards. We're going backwards here. And that's got to be a concern for all of us. So I think it's a very important question and all of us need to resolve to just keep Keep it. Try to keep moving it forward and not be too discouraged and not and realize that you aren't alone. Jen and sea change. It seems like, to me like a seminal moment. Um, I mean, it, it seems like what you said an unleashing of of a lot of emotions and experiences that have been there for a long time. And I think the challenge for all of us is is now the solutions and. Um, it's not an easy road, and uh, you know, per perhaps this will die off and we won't make any real change. Because um, I do think it's on a societal level as well. It's wrapped up in our expectations of women, especially in television, or visual objectification of women, and the way you have to look when you're a news anchor on a cable news network. All of these things are tied together. And, um, and I think there, I still think, as I get older, I realize there's this sort of base level of misogyny, sometimes towards women about anything, age, sexuality, what, what you have it. So all of that has to change. And I, I, I listened to an interview, actually, with Jane Fonda a few weeks ago, and she said, if women were paid the same amount as men, and they, they had the same seniority, this simply wouldn't happen. And I think that's a really good point. It just it wouldn't happen if they were at the same level. So. Katie, see change? Well, I'm, I'm very optimistic. I really am. I mean, I think it's critically important that we continue to have these conversations, that we include men in these conversations, and that we don't demonize all men as a result of this, this conversation. And to Shannon's point, I totally agree. I mean, I think as more women 
climb the ladders and as they have more power, the likelihood of this kind of behavior, I think, decreases significantly. And there are some clear-cut things that can be done. For example, there's something called the Rooney Rule, which was named for the owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers, I believe, that said when there was an opening in a coaching or managerial position, at least one minority or female candidate, I think it was one minority candidate, because this was in the NFL, had to be interviewed. And I interviewed some women in Silicon Valley, and they said, you know, if we don't know about these candidates, we can't hire them. And they implemented the Rooney Rule, and the number of women and minorities that were hired in her Silicon Valley firm increased to 75%. So I think a lot of it are some really pragmatic steps that can be taken. Things like blind resumes can be very useful, a commitment on the part of people like Mark Benioff at Salesforce to have gender equality and also pay equity is incredibly important as well. So I think some of these are the foundational steps that we need to achieve in order to also address these other problems as well, that they'll start to dissipate as the power imbalance is corrected. So I feel, I feel super positive because it just, I'm so bummed out about so many other things <laughs> that if, if I get bummed out about this and I'm not hopeful, I'm just going to crawl in a hole and never come out. So don't do that. I, I would say I am incredibly optimistic for three reasons. Women are speaking up. That is not going to change. Uh, and if, you know, older women are speaking up, but younger women don't think there's a question about whether you speak up. Number two, people are believing women when they speak up. And number three, there are more women in charge. And I think that makes a huge difference. So I am a complete optimist, at least about this. All right. So Good. Good. <laughs> Susan Page is Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today. Katie Couric is founder and executive producer for Katie Couric Media. Shannon Van Sant is a documentary filmmaker. Mona Charon is a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. She wrote the book, Sex Matters, How Modern Feminism Lost Touch with Science, Love, and Common Sense. Rebecca Blumenstein was deputy editor-in-chief at the Wall Street Journal before joining the New York Times. And Adrienne Green was editor-in-chief of Fangle Magazine. Now she's managing editor of The Atlantic. Their conversation was held June 28th at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me. Thank you.